Hello, I'm Charles Clausen, your host of the Ampex Podcast, a show where we engage in conversations with entrepreneurs and innovators whose wild ideas and exponential thinking are reshaping the universe where we live, play, and work. I believe these powerful conversations will inspire you to pursue your dreams. We're excited today to welcome Dan Clay as a special guest. Dan is a educator, an entrepreneur, and is doing all kinds of amazing work. Dan is the Dean of the University of Iowa College of Education, as well as a professor. Prior to the University of Iowa, he was at Missouri, where he was also Dean of the College of Education. He, while in Missouri, was part of the Missouri uh, Innovation Institute. Um, Dan is also a serial entrepreneur. Um, and he's doing very cool things in education and in business. So we'll we'll dig into both of those. But first, Dan, I thought we'd start and go back to your childhood. And you know, when you were a young person, what kind of sparked your interest in your innovation and creativity? What kind of started the journey that took you to where you are today? Yeah, well, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. And uh I'll talk about all kinds of stuff. So I find this to be really interesting. I grew up uh, in a small town in Northern Minnesota. My mom grew up on a uh, family farm and my father worked for his parents who owned a newspaper business, old school newspapers. And um, so they owned a small town newspaper and I worked on a farm growing up. Uh, We didn't have a lot when I was young. I didn't realize it at the time because everybody was living a pretty modest life in these small farming communities in Minnesota back then. I look back on it now and realize how hard my parents worked to make sure we had what we needed. We didn't know we were poor um, and we got by. Uh, So it's interesting to look back on your childhood from a different viewpoint than, you know, you had as you grew up. I had the good fortune, I think of um, spending most of my time formative years growing up in the country, in the woods, on a farm. And nature was a big part of what brought me peace, what inspired me still does today. It's an important part of, uh, of, of my day-to-day life and my work-life balance. So that was a big factor. But really, I think the key piece was the farming piece and just getting your hands dirty, learning the value of a good hard day's work and the satisfaction of going to bed exhausted, but knowing you did what you had to do. And I think, you know, one of the most important lessons I learned was, you know, when you're farming, you can't call somebody to come and fix a tractor if the nearest mechanic shop is 40 miles away and you can't call if your plumbing's broken, you have to figure it out and do it yourself. And so a lot of my childhood, I learned so much from, from other farmers and from the people I worked with about how you bootstrap with things around you to make it work and make it better. And uh, that was a big part of, uh, of what I carry forward from my childhood is this idea that, you know, you can find a way with what you have and what you can find to make things better and make it work. And that's a big part of what drives my interest now and some of the work that I'm doing. So you're, you grew up kind of being a mechanical engineer, fixing things and building things. And we'll get into some of the companies that you're building today. Um, 
So I don't, maybe, maybe we'll start with. Um, but I didn't say, I'll correct you. I didn't say it always worked. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's, <laughs> that's part of learning though, right? Is trying to figure out uh, when things don't work. And so there was a lot of times we'd fix something and it would break again and we'd fix it and it would break again until we figured out, we understood how it worked enough and how we could bootstrap to make it work. And so uh, there was a lot of failures along the way. It still is even today. And that's, a, but that's an important part of learning. Yeah. That's a, that's a major part of learning and innovation and, you know, play, I think is a, is a huge piece of education and learning as well. And I think sometimes even in business, creating a culture where you can experiment and play and, um, fail along the way because yeah. those failures, if you're not failing, you're not pushing the limits. So, um, you might, you might start talking about your, um, the scout, um, Scanlon center for school mental health. That's something that's new and exciting, and that's going to lead us in, in a lot of directions. So what's kind of the vision and the purpose and how did that get started, Dan? Yeah. So the Scanlon Center for School Mental Health is uh, a national center focused on addressing needs of our education system in Iowa, but serving as a model for um, a national, uh, other states in their relationships with state departments to have impact where it's most important to schools and kids. So uh, the center has been in existence for just over a year now. Um, you know, I'm a psychologist by training, a child psychologist. So I've always had a keen understanding of mental health and, um, you know, just like everybody else I've ever met, there were people in my life, family and friends who'd been affected by mental health issues. And so I had a personal um, relationship with the understanding of why and how that can be really important. So uh, as I came back to Iowa uh, to be the dean, uh, worked with our state department really to understand what, what are the most pressing needs that we have in our schools in Iowa. And like you would expect, they're the same problems we have all across the country. But the single biggest problem was the mental health issue uh, with our kids and what we came to find out after the pandemic with our educators. So we began, I began working on this vision for a national center for school mental health and uh, worked with our state department director, uh, whose name was Ryan Wise at the time. Um, and we began to formulate kind of a plan for how we could work together to bring the expertise and resources of a Big Ten research university and the knowledge um, and boots on the ground that the State Department had with our schools in the state. I started to raise some philanthropic dollars, a couple million dollars. We started hiring some experts to help fill in some of the gaps. So we you know, we hired some folks that um, in special education that really understood the social emotional needs of, of the younger kids with severe behavior problems. Um, we hired a school counseling faculty member who's an expert on suicide in high school students. So we began to build this team and then the pandemic hit. And as we know, you know, the pandemic was the, the world's biggest experiment in education ever because schools all over the world were shut down overnight and kids were sent home, to, some to learn online, some to not learn at all. And so the problems that we had in the school and the inequities and the mental health issues were exacerbated. 
And if anything can come uh, positive from the pandemic, it was that the mental health issues became a conversation at kitchen tables all over the country in places where they hadn't before. And so that new recognition of the severity, the issue was um, magnified by the pandemic and the social isolation and um, the failure for kids to have the opportunities to develop socially and emotionally appropriate development because they're not with their friends, they're not with their teachers. Uh, it became clear that now we're on the verge of a, a national crisis. And so um, with my State Department relationship already in place, we had already begun working on this. Um, it was clear that um, we could be the University of Iowa and the College of Education could be the partner to help address this problem in the state. And so um, we received a $20 million grant. Governor Kim Reynolds announced uh, this grant as, a, as an important initiative post-pandemic. Um, and we started hiring people to get to work. And within, literally within minutes of the announcement uh, at the press conference, we started getting calls and the, and the center hadn't even been formed yet. Uh, we started getting calls for help. And throughout the course of that first summer, we had multiple student suicides. We had a teacher in a school nearby that was murdered. And the uh, trauma and impact on social uh, and emotional learning and mental health for our educators and students in those communities was extraordinary. So well, I imagine that it, it expands well beyond the students. It's not only the students, but it's their parents who were struggling. They yeah. lost jobs. The same isolation, the additional stress with all the uncertainty and um, um, loved ones being quarantined or parents um, in nursing homes not being able to see them. So the, the whole mental health issue is, is a societal issue yeah. that, you know, starting with children or working with children in schools, but that kind of changes the, the role of education and K through 12 and even your your center does work with university yeah. students so education is changing and the scope is changing you want to yeah, talk is. a little bit about that yeah and I think you know one important thing to recognize is that a lot of the mental health issues students are facing and educators are a normal human reaction to really distressing things that were happening you know you mentioned folks lost jobs a lot of people lost family members or new people they lost to COVID. Um, the social isolation was really big, especially for those kids in those formative years and really for our aging population too, a lot of whom you know, were at the later stages of their life and couldn't connect with other people in their family. So there was a lot of loss experience there. Um, and so that kind of reaction is a normal reaction to really quite distressing things that were happening in the world at the time. But I think you you know the, the notion that education is really changing couldn't couldn't be more true, and this is a good example of how in a single uh, worldwide event or dis, uh, uh, distress um, stimulus instantly changed education. But it's been changing for a very long time, and there's a a couple of really important ways that I think it's been changing. One is that schools have become the primary source of um, social, and by social, I don't mean interpersonal, but societal supports for kids. So, you know, a lot of folks learned that 
when the school shut down, there were a lot of kids that didn't eat because the only place they got a good meal was at school. school. That shocked a lot of people. It didn't shock those of us that work in education, but schools have become a place that um, provides a lot of the social services for kids that have needs that aren't getting them met through their families or their other communities. So, you know, schools have become so much more than just about education. Um, so in, in that way, it's been going on for a, a very long time. I think we've seen a really rapid change in the last probably five years in a couple of ways. One is one way that we've talked about, and that is that, you know, teachers have been um, overwhelmed with the social, emotional, and mental health status and needs of the kids in our schools. And as one of the first things we did with the new Scanlon Center for School Mental Health is we put on a statewide conference and we had over 1,600 educators come. And the level of distress that our teachers were under was staggering. And so a lot of our work this last year has been working with our teaching workforce to help them be in the kind of place where they can help kids. So um, the role that teachers are playing just in terms of the social, emotional, like we don't want to turn teachers into therapists. I mean, that's not their job and that wouldn't be appropriate. But teachers now have to have knowledge and experience in identifying when social, emotional, and mental health needs are interfering with a kid's ability to thrive and succeed in school. And that, you know, when I was a kid, that didn't seem to be an issue as much as it is now. No, we never thought about these things when we were kids. We were just out playing in the farm fields and running around in the woods and playing baseball. And, you know, life was simpler when we were young. Yeah, it sure sure was. Um, I was probably one of those kids that was a problem for the teacher that was acted (laughs) up all the time, but uh, I can't deny that. But the other really important way that education has changed is that historically, the only way people accessed content knowledge was through the teacher. So the only way you could learn about calculus was if you had the calculus class with the teacher that taught you calculus. So our our portal to content, whether it's history, math, the arts, was through somebody who was an expert that could teach it to us. Now with technology, we have unlimited access to just about every bit of content there is in the world. So the role of teachers has shifted away from content expert to facilitator in helping students learn how they learn how do they access the kind of content they can get through technology? So it's more about um, digital literacy than it is about teaching students you know, how to do math. They still teach students how to do math. They still teach students history, but the student's access to that information is not limited anymore. You so, can- so the teacher becomes almost uh, a coach, a guide in terms of emotional intelligence, how to engage, how to process emotions and find information. And I mean, that's quite a a departure from providing content to working with their their emotional well-being, their physical well-being, their mental health. Um, That's a lot of responsibility. It is. You have to teach them a lot more than just history and science yes. to be effective. Yeah, it's it's uh, so the role of teachers is expanding for, for certain. 
Um, you know, one of the things our teachers, when you and I were kids, never had to worry about is teaching us when to believe something we read online or when to not believe it. Well, whether it's or, tr- or, where's the real truth in yeah. it? For How to determine like, you know, the people that put this content up there, was there a specific motive that they had? And was that motive influencing what they told you and why or how? All of that's really important now because so much of what kids read and, and get is from the internet or through social media. And so how, you know, how do even, it's even hard for us as adults when we see something that even might come from a reputable source to know how true it is. It's become really difficult. So teaching that ability to analyze the source of a message, to understand the potential motivations of the people providing the content is really important for our kids to learn now through the education system that, you know, was a non-issue when you and I went to school. You know, another dynamic that I think impacts everyone, but impacts kids is just the rate of technology change in convergence. And when you shift from linear change to more exponential change, um, lots of things happen. The human brain isn't really designed to process um, the amount of information that's thrown, thrown at everyone. So, you know, you, you mentioned when you were a child, nature played a big role and nature also plays a big role in my life. And I I think in my coaching work with businesses, with all of this rapid change, you have to find a way to become grounded and to slow things down so you can speed up and process all this information. So, you know, reflective time and and meditation and and staying grounded because these kids get bombarded with so much. And I imagine the stress is so high that a lot of them are just on the verge of snapping and if they act out in a violent way in school, then the teacher has to enter in. So there's, it's very complex. It is, yeah. And, you know, your brain needs to rest to develop too. And our kids and a lot of adults now are so tied to stimulus. They're either watching TV, they're on social media, they're watching videos on YouTube or TikTok. And your brain is constantly inundated with stimulus, right? And that's okay as long as you can shut it off and take a walk and a deep breath and recenter yourself. But very few people build that opportunity to turn their brains down for a little bit into their daily routine or their life. And so it's just the minute you wake up, it's constant stimulus. And then you go to sleep. You can't go to sleep because your brain's processing you know, most, a lot of kids are on their phone until they put their head on the pillow and uh, you don't give your brain a chance to slow down and settle down. And, you know, I worry about the long-term effects of just this bombardment. Uh, And I see kids now and adults too, you pull up to a stoplight and nobody can just peacefully wait at the stoplight and just notice the sounds around them and, it, without being on their phone and then the light changes and yeah, nobody goes because everybody's on their phone. So you, you, you know, people have become so conditioned to that stimulus that even 30 seconds without looking at something at the stoplight or they order a coffee at Starbucks and they can't just wait 
and smile at people coming by before their coffee's ready. They're on their phone watching a TikTok video or something. And it's like this, this craving of the stimulus because you've been so conditioned for it is a little disconcerting. Well, as an innovative educator that's really focused on teaching and training the teachers of the future, and in the case of the um, uh, Scanlon Center, working with existing teachers in the state to teach them how to cope, accommodate, and you know, work with the kids to teach them how to thrive in all this yeah. chaos. How do you curate or how do you think about the environment, the education environment? And you know, what is that today? And what does that look like in five to 10 years with the metaverse and with you know, um, creating experiential learning in a synthetic environment? If you're learning biology, you're in the Amazon jungle and it looks and feels like yeah. if you've got your your virtual reality headphones on and you're an avatar and you can almost go any place and learn anything. How does that help with this um, slowing down and finding a way to ground? Yeah. Like, like, like everything that's complex, there's some good things about it and some things that I wish were different. I think the importance of human relationships underlies really what makes us different than other animals. And the extent to which we remove that human relationship component to everything we do, um, I think is a long-term problem for our, our culture, our society, and for us as, as humans. The interesting thing, um, technology is in some ways removed people from that. I see people on a date sitting across from each other at the table, texting each other. <laughs> I've been talking, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> rather than talking to each other or people that are dating and they don't even know what each other's voice sounds like. Um, that's an extreme example. But, but you think about how now people in this technology space have come to understand the importance of connecting. And so they've built these communities in the metaverse where people can be themselves as avatars and build relationships with other people who populate that environment as avatars as well. Right. And so there's some wonderful applications of that for education. So you think about you know, kids that have social anxiety, maybe kids with autism. It's an opportunity to practice learning and developing social skills through your avatar with other avatars that allows you to develop those skills, but removes the social anxiety of the moment, right? To do it in person. So you know, we have a couple of faculty working on a really interesting um, virtual reality-based system where we have a classroom. And, you know, a challenge that we have is how do we train special education teachers especially, but train teachers to manage the multiple demands, behavioral, educational of a classroom. The historical model is we put students as student teachers in a regular classroom. Right. But the more and more challenging these classrooms have become and the more and more schools are held accountable for um, student learning, schools are becoming more reluctant to put a newbie teacher in a classroom full of special needs kids to practice learning these skills, <laughs> right? So, yeah, one, <laughs> so one really interesting application they're working on is developing a, uh, an AI-backed um, uh, VR infrastructure that allows student teachers as an avatar to go into a classroom and, and these other avatars um, behaving in ways that require the teachers to respond both negative and positive. 
And then the student's subsequent behaviors are going to depend on what the teacher's avatar does. And so the AI framework can help us with that. So the reactions of kids are real and they feel real to the teacher. And so that the student can actually practice managing the complex uh, environment, the behaviors, the learning in the classroom through this VR system, this immersion experience in the classroom, which is really interesting. So how, how far are you along in developing this metaverse, education metaverse? Yeah, it's um, one of our faculty members, Seth King, is a special educator uh, trained at Vanderbilt who's um, really interested in the interface of special needs learning and technology. And he's kind of a driver on our side. He's um, working with a couple of faculty members in the College of Engineering here who are doing the software development coding side of this. And uh, they've gotten a couple of seed grants. They want a small AI innovation grant to do because they, they uh, have a proof of concept now. And so they're starting to build the evidence behind its efficacy. So they have enough resources to build kind of a rudimentary infrastructure. And now we're collecting some data to show that this environment can actually be an effective way to train teachers. Once we have more of that evidence, I think it provides the kind of data you need for much larger, bigger interdisciplinary grants. You know, it's, it's interesting. I just read a book, I think it was by Stuart Brown on play and the importance in play. And I found it fascinating and I intuitively didn't know this, but it makes absolute sense that, you know, when you're a child and you go outside and you play sandlot football or you play hide and go seek with the neighborhood kids, you start developing social behaviors and norms mm -hmm. and learn how to communicate. You learn the human part of play and how to work together and work things out. And as you grow and the games get more complicated, they, they get, um, it teaches a lot. Play is critical, but it also has a large role in cognitive development. And actually there's, there's lots of studies on the development and the size of the human brain is correlated directly to the types of play. So I wonder when they're, they're creating these, these metaverses and these classrooms, how they can create play that's stimulating that teaches emotions and appropriate yeah. human behavior and, you know, impatience. Cause sometimes you just gotta, things don't always happen now. I mean, in life and in business, sometimes when you try to push too hard, too fast because you want it now, yeah, it, it just, it doesn't always end well. So, you know, creating, I mean, I guess instead of playing, maybe the word is gaming. How do you create, and I assume that's where the metaverse is going. So much of this is gaming and how it's you gaming, teach, yeah. how do you teach the human elephant when you're in a metaverse with a hundred kids or 20 kids versus being out in the side lot with a football and actually, you know, button heads and yeah. tackling each other. And so, I mean, I, I don't know, Dan, it's, it's complicated, but that emotional part of it and the human aspect of the metaverse is something I think teachers in education is going to be critical. I do too. I think, you know, you've hit on a number of key points there. One is just the research on delayed gratification. And from very early on, we know that people that are more able to delay gratification tend to be more successful. And so, you know, some really interesting studies about with kids that, you know, there's a dish full of candy. And it's like, well, you can have, you know, one piece 
now, or if you don't eat any candy for 20 minutes, you can have the whole bowl. They take the one piece of candy now. Right. And I think a lot of the stimulus, like, I think, I think we're promoting more impulsivity and it makes it more difficult to delay gratification. Um, so that's a really interesting uh, point that you brought up, but the, the purpose of play and development is critical. And I, you know, I spent some time over in Norway this summer and they have a very different approach to play than we do. You know, we put a helmet on our kid and a GPS tracker and, you know, we're all, their view is very different. They encourage kids to explore and they, the, the idea is that you learn about yourself and its relationship to the world through play early on. So they have what is called risky play. So they let kids climb the tree and fall down within reason. Of course, they're not going to let them play in traffic, but let them experience and let them learn that, you know, when you climb a tree, you better be safe. You can't climb too high. It's going to hurt if you fall. Those are all really important lessons. And if we don't ever let our kids fall and hurt their arm early, metaphorically, we don't ever let them experience the natural consequences of the choices they make. When they get older, they're going to make bigger mistakes with bigger consequences because they never learned how to make decisions. And so that's a really interesting thing too. Another aspect you hit on that's critical is the role that play has in helping us develop our social emotional skills. So, you know, when we were kids in the little town, you know, a bunch of us would gather in a lot, an empty lot next to the school, and we'd make up games or we'd play baseball. And, um, you know, we, we, we had to sort of negotiate, you know, Johnny's only six, so he only has to hit it this far for a home run. But, you know, Charles, you're 16 and you're on the football team, so you have to hit it over the neighbor's house over to get the it. Fence, yeah. yeah, right. <laughs> and then when there was conflicts, right, there weren't parents there to mediate it. So we had to figure out how to work with each other, right? Nobody wanted everybody just to go home. So we figured it out together. And kids today don't have that same opportunity. Everything is so structured, even their play and their sports and everything is so rule bound and so governed and so structured. You know, when we make a mistake or we hit somebody too hard, you know, we have referees and parents that are mediating it instead of the kids figuring out how to manage so kids it. don't learn. I mean, I remember as we're talking about this, it brings back memories. I remember the first time I got a bloody nose and, you know, you get into these altercations and you, you get the consequences. And yeah. I'm not sure I ever had a bloody nose again because I didn't like that. Yeah. But um, how do you, how do you change that in, in our society with, you know, the cell phones and the, the games and I mean, how yeah. do we or how do we intervene with something that teaches those those emotional, humanistic, compassionate, you know, listening? I mean, part of it is you got to slow down long enough to listen and try to sense what the other person is feeling, and um, you yeah. know, get engage at a at a more human level because we're, we're we're going just the opposite way from you know we've got political polarization and we've got these groups that are um pretty radical and it's yeah. not about how we find middle ground and how we solve problems it's about a point of view and it gets kind of scary when you think where that ends up yeah isn't that the truth i mean i've never in my lifetime seen this level of polariz polarization especially around education seems to be the battleground right now for 
different perspectives. You know, we talk about technology and a lot of folks see, you know, technology and social media and, you know, excessive video gaming and addiction to video games and stuff as sort of a culprit. And there's probably some truth to that. But the interesting question to me is, you know, kids have an intrinsic motivation to do that. So how do we capitalize on their desire to engage with technology in that way, but towards something that's beneficial? So, you know, one of the companies I started when I was in Missouri was a gaming company that was designed to teach kids fitness in three different ways, physical fitness. So we built into the gaming, physical fitness, mental fitness, like, you know, how, how do you persevere when it looks like you're going to lose? How do you not give up? How do you, you know, and then the social ones. So how do you understand that not every kid can be the quarterback, right? That's a really important lesson because everybody wants to be the quarterback, but not everybody is, is built to be the quarterback. Somebody has to be on the line. Somebody has to be a wide receiver, you know, somebody, not everybody can run the ball. So we have to learn what is our role on a team that's not about my glory, but helping the team be successful. Like if I'm hiring somebody, that's one of the things I'd be looking for. How do we teach that, right? Using technology. So this company was designed to use that environment to help kids understand how they work together on a team. It's be okay you know, Charles, I'm going to run over to this corner and I'm going to draw a fire and that, and I'm probably going to, my character is going to die, but that's going to allow you to get into the castle. And we know that the only way we're going to win this is if you get in that castle, right? Like that's a pretty advanced level of teamwork that games. The ultimate sacrifice. Absolutely. For the right. Team to thrive. Right. Right. You know, and it's in a lot of ways that carries over into our interpersonal relationships and, the businesses we run and, and the people we work for and, and such, like those are critical lessons. And if we're not going to learn them on the sandlot, or we're not going to learn them in, you know, peewee football or little league, where are we going to learn these? And if, if all of our kids are on these technology platforms, how can we leverage those platforms to teach them those lessons that will make them successful in life, whether it's you know, teamwork, the ability to understand your own limitations and strengths, um, you know, how you persevere. You can't, you know, you can't just go to practice when you want to go to practice. You have to go to practice every single day because your teammates are counting on you. Like, how do you learn that? Right? So, I mean, that, that, I mean if, how do, if you can figure that out and come up with a really good game or metaverse um, environment then i assume you have to almost the kids have to help curate it but there also has to be some ai in there that teaches them lessons and teaches them how to you know do these things and learn from it then maybe go back and replay it and see what how the outcomes may change i, I don't know but it's um you know you talked about kids wanting to get on the computers and the, their cell phones and play games we were in um Fargo for a wedding in, in mid-August and my daughter and my nine, seven and three-year-old grandchildren came up. So we took them to the, the family farm outside of Wing, North Dakota, which is in the middle of nowhere. It's, yes. <laughs> it's, it's nothing fancy, you know, you, a couple of ponies, a horse, a donkey, three cows, um, a sheep. And 
they love to climb the trees. They love to go out and pick choke cherries because they make yeah. choke cherry jam to put on pancakes. Oh, yeah. And, you know, picking apples to feed to the donkeys. And we've been taking them there for three years and they love it. And they're even the donkeys love it. <laughs> oh, yeah. It's, it's, it's amazing yeah. how the animals all engage with the kids. But the TV never goes on. They never want to a phone or a computer game they can't wait to get outside and yeah. they'll be sitting up in the in the tree with a blanket reading a book and so i think as parents and shepherds of young people all we have to do is get them out in nature and get them in the woods and let them experience this and it they'll never forget it and yeah they, i agree enjoy it. And, and there's some really good research too on the positive impact so in the College of Education here at the University of Iowa, we have what's called the School of the Wild. And it's an opportunity for kids in fifth or sixth grade in schools around the state to spend an entire week at a local park. And they have all their classes out there, their history, their, they learn math by measuring chat. I mean, all of things that you would want kids to do. And the idea is that you get kids learning in an environment that's outside their classroom. And we know from research, the positive mental health benefits that has, we know that those kids that don't engage in the classroom engage when they have a hands-on outdoor immersive experience. And the, um, the, the, the school is designed primarily to support and enhance the learning experiences of kids. But what we've also done is use this as an opportunity to train teachers around the state, how to use their local parks, whether it's a state park, a county park, a city park, as a classroom, right? Training teachers how to use that outdoor environment as their classroom, how they can teach any subject they teach in their school in that park. And it's an amazing, it's, it's an amazing experience. We're hoping to grow that to give more kids around. How the long state. has that been going on and how many schools? Are yeah, so that's been going on uh, for several years. It's only the last few years we've really conceptualize this as an opportunity to train teachers to, to scale this so that more, even students that leave Iowa to teach in other states um, can understand the importance, understand the research and have the skills to do this in their own schools. Once they do it, teachers and school administrators are like, why haven't we been doing this all along, right? It's, it's an amazing experience. And so, you know, there are schools in 20, 30 counties around the state now that are participating in this program. Our goal is to grow it. I'd love for every fifth or sixth grader in the state to have an opportunity to spend a week outdoors. My kids loved it. I mean, they came home filthy and they, they were exhausted and it was the best day of school they ever had. They learned to build, you know, shelters and they used their, their geometry and their math and what they knew about biology to build shelters. I mean, it was a it was a great experience. Have you ever thought what that might look like if for adults? <laughs> well, yeah, adults need it probably just as badly. But if they did it one day a week for the whole school year, you're mm. out there in the middle of winter in the snow, and you're out there in the spring in the mud, and you just get out there and you see the cycles of life and nature. And, yeah, you know, we have we're blessed to have the Amish community that. You get down there on those Amish farms and they, they teach you how they make rope. And yeah, I mean, they innovate in a lot of creative ways that are very simple. Out of necessity, you know, yeah. which is really, 
which is gets me back to the first question you asked today is, you know, necessity really drove a lot of the creativity and curiosity around how we might accomplish something when alternatives were limited for solving a problem. I did spend some time in Finland too this summer. And the interesting thing about Finnish schools is they spend 15 minutes of every single hour outside. And it doesn't matter if it's snowing, if it's raining, if it's cold, if it's hot, they dress appropriately. And in between every class, they spend 15 minutes outside. I can guarantee you when the, kid, the kids are in class for 45 minutes, their attention level's at a different place than if they sat it's, there it's all day. Yeah, think of just all the potential positive impacts. And of course, in the US, we're all worried about that 15 minutes could have been used for instructional time, right? But if you look at the learning outcomes, the, the finished schools are considered by many to be the best in the world. But, you know, some of the very best in the world, at least, for sure. And so it's a total, totally different framework. In the U.S., we're so concerned about every minute being used for instruction. And I think a lot of that came with no child left behind, the accountability, the fear that we got to get these kids to score a certain score on a certain test, that it became the focus of the work that we did in the schools instead of thinking, how do we promote things like curiosity? You know, one of the greatest gifts that I've ever been given by our creator is curiosity. Every time I see a windmill, I'm like, I wonder how that works, right? Every time I see something, I'm like, I wonder how that started. I wonder where that's going. Why is it gray and not black? And, and, I, and, and that keeps me engaged in, it's probably why I chase squirrels and rabbits down all kinds of different pathways, but <laughs> it's led me on some of the most interesting things that you could ever imagine on six different continents in the world doing just really interesting and crazy stuff because the sense of wonder and curiosity, I think if there are two things that I think could change the world is we could make sure every kid had a sense of curiosity and wonder and a sense of empathy. Those two things together would make, I think, the potential for the human spirit limitless. Boy, I agree. How do you, um, well, how do you empower teachers to teach young people to be curious? I mean, a lot of it probably comes from their environment at home and, you know, how their parents engage in learning and creativity yeah. and letting them play and, and not trying to control. I mean, <clears throat> go from school, then you go to basketball, then you go to violin yeah. lesson. Every minute's here, organized. They don't yeah. have any time to even think because they're just shuttled from one activity to another. And, you know, at some point, they yeah, graduate. I think a lot of it gets back to the early play stuff. I mean, you got to let kids eat dirt and figure it out. And there's something really important that goes on there. I think they're developmentally that stimulates a lot of curiosity in kids. And you know, one of the things that I did when I was, you know, six, seven, eight, nine years old in a really tiny town is it's a handful of us that rode our little banana seat bikes around in the summer. And we'd find a place on the edge of town where there were some woods and we'd build a secret fort. Right. And, and then we had to figure out like, how are we, if we're going to build, a, how are we going to get a roof on this thing? So it's not going to rain in here. Well, we're going to need some materials. So we go scavenging materials and like, there's some, there's some value to that. I think that serves us our sense of curiosity, our sense of collective problem solving, 
I, I remember an event in Austin when we were probably in first grade when we built a grass fort um, <laughs> grass along fort. one of the, the major highways. We lived on Westover Road and we, we thought we needed light, so we had a candle. But um, you learn really quickly what happens when <laughs> that candle hits this dry grass. You have a fire going on along the interstate. You learned a valuable lesson yeah. there, didn't you? You know, we started that. So you, you run for home as fast as you can. <laughs> but yeah, you learn those, those valuable lessons yeah. from, you know, creating things. So the, the challenge is how, how do we really promote? I mean, you want to keep kids safe, obviously, but how do you promote that? early on so that kids develop a sense of wonder, they develop a sense of curiosity. And, you know, oftentimes we have a vision for what we want and need our kids to do. And as soon as they stray from that track, they're corrected. I'll never forget, I was sitting on a plane and there was about a two and a half year old and he was like curious why there was air blowing out of the vent on the airplane. And so he was poking at it and pushing buttons and moving it and moving his head in and out of the airstream. And, and I remember the parent like correcting that kid and telling him to stop pushing the buttons and sit down and because they weren't behaving in a way that we thought they should behave in. And it didn't occur to me till a long time after that, but a gentleman sitting next to me just said, wow, that kid is really curious. And, you know, that kid's curiosity got just crushed by the parent who had no ill will, obviously, toward the kid. But, you know, sometimes we have the sense for we want our kids to conform and be who we want them to be. And we don't let them wander and stray and poke at buttons and wonder. And you want how, you know, how much of that is shaped early on without our even knowing it. Yeah, that's a good point. I could see in the metaverse where you could create these virtual environments in the jungle where, um, you go and you kick a boa constrictor, then it wraps around you. Yeah. Then it gets tight. And, and where you could go, you know, I wonder what this is. And you eat a mushroom and either, it. oh, it's, it's healthy yeah. or not. But maybe you watch the berries that the animals eat, the birds eat before you eat one. Yeah. And so there's, uh, I think, a lot of things you could do with curiosity in a virtual world with an avatar where you could do things experience the consequences, but it wouldn't be fatal. Yeah. (laughs) Well, that's the benefit, right? Maybe you could manage some of those opportunities to explore and at the same time, ensure the safety of the participants in, in ways that, you know, if you eat a mushroom and your character dies, it's not the end of the world for you, but, but you learn not to eat the mushroom. Yeah. There's, I, I don't know if there's societally you think about, all the AP courses and what parents do to push their kids on all these activities so they can get into the best school, whether it's Harvard or Stanford yeah. or the University of Iowa. It's like an arms there. race, isn't it? But, you know, are the kids really um, prepared for success in the world? And I think the younger kids, I mean, they, they, they're looking for different lifestyles, maybe not as materialistic, a lot more travel, but. And more meaning based, like. Yeah. You know, their goal isn't to make the most money. Their goal is to make enough money to live, but to have some impact in ways that matter to them. It's a huge shift from the materialistic, you know, generation. Some of these, you know, younger um, professionals really want to make a difference in ways that matter instead of making a gazillion dollars. Well, I mean, that's probably a way you can inspire kids' curiosity in the meta- metaverse is to let them go out and, and 
pick a community of passionate people that want to solve the water problem or solve the carbon problem and let kids in a community just start using technology and science to solve these problems. And yeah. that way they're actually solving a wicked, a piece of a wicked global problem. I mean, there's the 17 United Nations sustainability yeah. goals. Yeah. But the, uh, you know, I'm thinking Dan about the empathy part of the equation. So you had curiosity and empathy are gonna create great well-rounded people that are gonna survive well and be human in a world. And we're moving yeah. away from being human to something being, I don't, I don't know, I'm the first word that comes to mind is being monsters that are um, polarized and we have an opinion and we're gonna fight come hell or high water for whatever yeah. that is, regardless of consequences and regardless of the long-term impact on humanity. So, you know, how do you, how do you think about empathy? Yeah, that's a tough one. I think, you know, one of our challenges in one of our goals in the Scanlon Center for School Mental Health is to help train teachers how to develop experiences in the classroom that help kids practice empathy and uh, and understand what empathy means. And so there are actually specific pedagogies where kids will read a story with different characters and ask, well, how do you think this character feels? And how do you think that might be the same or different than what this other character is feeling? And so you give kids practice thinking about and understanding what the experiences and feelings and thoughts of others are. So there, there are specific pedagogies to help help with that. Um, but, you know, you wrap that into, you know, half the kids in, in the class have special needs. A third of them didn't eat before they came to school that morning. Two of them are homeless. <laughs> right? yeah. And you're trying to teach them, you know, how to read, for example. Um, but we think it's really important. I think it's important and clearly a, an essential part of the development of a healthy whole self for kids as they develop is the social emotional learning piece. You know, that being able to express their feelings and, and you know part of it i guess is you have to have especially in kids that are in troubled homes with learning disabilities a safe environment where they can actually share those feelings but sometimes um, they may not even know how to express in words what they're feeling they, they have an anger that comes up or they have a frustration yeah. and they don't know how to express it and they may not have someone to listen so then they act out and um i think it goes both ways uh you know now if somebody says something that hurts your feelings you know you're outraged and you know one of the challenges we have uh in k-12 schools and university campuses is like these should be places for ex the exchange of differing views and differing ideas, like that's the whole purpose of an education, right? Um, but what happens is, you know, people get really anchored in their position and polarized. And if somebody has a viewpoint that's different than theirs and they're offended or their feelings are hurt, then it's not just, well, I disagree and let's, ha you know, let's hash this out together and maybe both of us learn something from each other. You, you, you know, once your feelings are hurt, the other person's a perpetrator and you're the victim. And it really prevents us from having the kind of active engagement. And it's not easy, right? Most things in life that are worthwhile aren't easy. 
those are hard conversations. And sometimes people get offended and sometimes their feelings get hurt, but you know, that's, it's part of being human. And that's part of learning how to live together and work together. And I'm afraid that we've, we've gotten to a place where people, you know, they get so anchored and polarized in their viewpoint. And then all they see on their social media feeds is what reinforces their belief. And then anything else, any other kind of contradicting information, whether it's, you know, right or not, or even offensive or not, like we have to be able to tolerate, you know, we don't have a natural or God-given or legal right to not have our feelings hurt. Right. But a lot of people have come to that point where, you know, they're so anchored in their positions, whether it's politically or socially, that we can't have a dialogue in an honest conversation, an authentic conversation with each other about those differences and learn from each other immediately. You know, Charles, when you say something that I, you know, find reprehensible or I disagree with, or I think is biased or whatever, suddenly all I see in you is a perpetrator of whatever falsehood or offensive or, and we lose that ability to communicate with each other, even about things that are difficult to talk about. You just, you just hit on something that I think is, is vital to the future of economics, business, in all aspects of society. And you touched on this earlier, which was about the teamwork. But when you look at businesses historically, they had a functional organization with a CEO at the top, then you have this command and control kind of hierarchy. Mm-hmm. And you know, by and large, a lot of those organizations are, are gone today. And that, that culture is not a place where young people want to go and engage. But you know, I think a lot about creating culture in an organization. And um, I mean, I almost don't even like to use the word organization because you have a view of what that is, but a a culture where you move away from leadership, which is the functional command and control to a a teammanship where you bring together a team and cognitive diversity is critical when you want to innovate with exponential technologies and emerging technologies. One of the most important aspects of diversity on teams is that when you, the more diverse your team is, it might take a little longer, but you tend to make better decisions. And so there, there, there'll be more unicorns, billion dollar companies created in the next 10 to 15 years than we've seen in the last hundred. It'll blow it'll blow people away with what can be done with um, technology. So you start with digitizing, then you uh, dematerialize, <clears throat> then you demonetize. But, um, you know, when you start thinking about these opportunities, the teams that will address these challenges require a different skill set. <clears throat> yeah. You have to be a team versus a, a, a boss with command and control, and you have to be able to move fast. And, you know, I think a lot about how you create these cultures of teamwork and collaboration in um, organizations, I mean, whether it's a a business or a a government or a school. Yeah, um, people aren't going to do what they're told to do now. They're going to do what they want to do, right? And so in an organization, if you can create a work experience that's meaningful, that solves a problem, that 
that adds value for people. I think that, you know, when we see this, the, the economy now and the workforce, like people are during COVID, you know, this mass resignation we've seen, people are tired of just going to a cubicle and, cubicle and being told what to do. People are doing now what they want to do. And so I interrupted you, but I, no, I can see it when I think about an organization, I think, how do you take that command and control structure and create interdisciplinary diverse teams that um, the members can do what they care about and want to do in a way that benefits whatever your business is. Uh, and or, or what I think you hit something instead of business or organization, whatever your purpose is, yeah, you're yeah. aligning around a purpose that you're passionate about. So then, good, yeah. I mean, I think that will motivate kids in school. That'll motivate businesses to solve massive wicked problems. Um, so I think you know, purpose becomes more meaningful. Um, we we probably got 15 or 20 minutes left before you have to run. So I. Um, I was talking to, to Jerry Clancy, who's involved with the yeah. trauma center at the University of Iowa and the difficulty in a level one trauma center um, with even admitting patients that are coming in and some of them are tripping on drugs or out, I mean, who knows yeah. what's going on and the difficulty in trying to do an initial assessment. So you know, I started to think about it and said, well, what if you, took some of the technologies, some of the um, camera technologies and sensing technologies where you can look at facial movements, you can look at eye movements, you can look at tone and voices. And um, I was thinking about a ER robot that could help support doctors, nurses, care providers. And this person is likely experiencing this and here's yeah. the risk and here's, you know, give them a Gatorade and they'll calm down. But, you know, I wonder if some of this technology could be brought into the classroom as a tool for teachers to help raise flags, say this kid could use this kind of intervention or even in the yeah. metaverse, because if they're an avatar in the metaverse, you, you have all these sensors that can sense these different things. So you can start giving feedback. I mean, you could give direct feedback to the kid you know, why are you, why are you you're anxious? Why are you feeling this? Um, you know, try this to, you know, to, to learn how to relax and calm down under stress. But I'm wondering yeah. how technology might play a, a supplemental role to support the teachers. Yeah. I, you know, we're working a little bit on that and, and what really, really effective teachers do is they know their kids and they can, they can see and understand when the kids are having a good day and a bad day. But when it comes to teaching and learning, they know that maybe Charles is really good at hitting a curveball. I'll use another sports analogy here, but Susie, Susie's strength is hitting a fastball, right? And Tommy over here, his strength is hitting a changeup. So when, when they engage that student in a learning process, they throw you the curveball and they throw the other student. That's a very complex process, but it occurs every day in the classroom with really good teachers. Mm -hmm. Now, how can, we, how can we collect data on all the kids and let the teacher know today's the day that Johnny can hit the curveball out of the park? 
but Susie's not going to hit a fastball today for whatever reason. Like this sort of complex social, emotional, and cognitive. So you don't humiliate them in front of the whole class? Or, something or you or... just don't lose them. They just don't tune you out because, oh, I got it. or, you know, whatever. Um, and, and, you know, to keep them engaged, you want and need students engaged in the process. And really good teachers, just like really good coaches, know what it takes to get the best out of every player on the team. And maybe for you, you need a good butt chewing and a kick in, but, but maybe this other student who, or other athlete, he might need a different kind of coaching, even when he makes mistakes, instead of corrective feedback and, you know, criticism, maybe he just needs more encouragement because he'll break. Right. And so, or she'll break. And so, you know, teachers, really good teach. That's a really complicated skill, but if you've ever seen effective teachers, it's remarkable what they can do in the classroom. How can technology help everyone replicate? Yes. Replicate that ability to understand and triage the situation and know when to do what with each student. We, we do have one of our faculty, actually the executive director of our Scanlon Center for School Mental Health, Allison Brune, has developed uh, an app on a phone that um, uses information derived from the student and provides real-time data to teachers to help them understand where the student's at and what their needs are. And the goal of it is to help manage severe behavior problems in the classrooms. Really, some also some really interesting work. So you know, we're exploring ways to try to collect data, but you know, when, when really good ER personnel, when somebody comes in before anybody says a word, they can see that situation and triage it and give you a pretty good idea of what's happening. Right? Exactly. But there's, that might be one in 10. That's a really one in 20 people that yeah. have that skill set. Yeah. The experience that, because they've been through it and they know what those symptoms are. So, I mean, it's, 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 you know, the biggest weakness in technology is is, you know, one of the things that's just miraculous about humans is our frontal lobe has been developed in a way that allows us to do things that are cognitively so complex. So you and I are standing in the yard and kids are playing and all of a sudden we see a ball roll out into the street and we see a car coming. And what's the first thing you do? You think, uh oh, right? Because you see a potential something might happen. But it even gets more complex because you see that the car is moving faster and you see that the kid's going to run out between two parked cars to get the ball. And so probably isn't going to see the car coming, right? You can see a possible future scenario based on what you're analyzing right now in ways that are much more complicated and difficult than you can do through a formulaic computer program. And the brains are the most amazing computers ever. <clears throat> so they go fast. So <laughs> Yeah. And you think about how complex, you know, the mathematics and the programming is behind something that is so sophisticated. It can do what just our, our human brain does naturally. And you think about that ER person, you think about that school teacher, the, the ability to read the situation and all the nonverbal cues and that's complex stuff. Yeah, it is. It is. So I, in, in the beginning of the conversation, you talked about the pandemic and you talked about Governor Kim Reynolds stepping up and funding the um, Center for School Mental Health. And my, my next question is, you know, I look, look at the university process and the accreditation process and the governor moved quick and you moved quick to make adjustments in the classroom and 
we're probably not going to have time to talk about some of your, your global interactive online education programs, but universities in higher education with the accreditation process and the speed at which all of this is, yeah. is moving, uh, you know, I just wonder, um, how do we keep up as university educators and leaders with adjusting the curriculum so the university students are getting what they need to be competitive in the world. And we could get into innovation and just, you know, stuff that I think some on the business side is, is, is lacking. But, you know, as a country, we've always been great innovators, but, you know. And, um, yeah, higher ed, you know, <clears throat> higher ed as an institution has been around as long as just about every other institution in the world, except maybe their church. Right. And the reason it's still around is because it, it doesn't run off a cliff. Right. So that's a really important part of a university is they move slowly. And there's some benefits to that. The downside of course, is that the world is moving a lot faster now than it was a hundred years ago. Mm -hmm. And in public education in general, you know, we're, we have to be good stewards of the public's money and the public's trust, taxpayer money, student tuition dollars, which means by definition, it's very hard to take risks. It's hard to take risks in public education because failure is not tolerated, right? So you can't lose a bunch of money on testing an idea if, if um, you know, we're, we're not giving, our faculty aren't paid at a level they deserve, nor our staff, mm -hmm. nor would the market demand, but that's just where we're at right now. Mm -hmm. We're trying to address that. But you're laying off faculty, you're closing programs, the state's cutting the budget, tuition's going up. The tolerance for risk around those resources is very low or almost zero. And I always joke that higher ed puts the no in innovation, right? Because we can't, I mean, this is where the private sector can do so much more, so much faster is because you can lose a billion dollars as an investment and understand up front, we're going to lose a billion, but one of these is going to be the home run, the moonshot that we're shooting for. That's very hard to do because we move slowly. We have very little tolerance for risk. And that's a good thing too, because I don't think we ought to be blowing taxpayer dollars or student tuition dollars. No, that, that's a point, Dan. But I, I think with technology, a lot of the, the cost for innovation, you can do things 10x cheaper. Yes. So when you reduce the cost by a thousand percent, you know, maybe, maybe at some point the private sector takes over the role of education and ultimately the students can vote where. Um, I can't get what I want from University of Minnesota, but I can go to this program. They, they do now. They vote with their feet. <laughs> so, yeah. so, you know, where we, we have to be, we have to be making sure we understand what our, our current and future customers, our students and other people we serve, our taxpayers, what they need now and in the future and be skating to that point instead of trying to continue to do what we always do and convince people that what we always do is still relevant. And that's a really different kind of a framework to think about. Yeah, you know, with higher um, end. Wayne Gretzky skating to where the puck will be. I mean, 
I mean, Elon Musk does that. He looks out 10 years to what the converging technologies are and he comes backwards. So Tesla is not an automobile company. It's an AI company. It's a robotic company. It's, it's all these things, but yeah. it's not a car company. And he's created the, I mean, the most valuable business in the world. So but, the you know, million dollar question, Charles, is how do we get the, boast of, the best of both of those worlds to interface? Because there's some enormous intellectual and other assets that universities have, including relationships with key components of a success story. And there are important aspects of the private sector, the ability to take higher risks. How do we take the very best of those two worlds and overlap them somehow? That's, if you can figure that out, then. Well, being the disruptor that I am, <laughs> my dad was, um, when he was alive, was an academic at Texas and the University of Iowa and associate dean. So I kind of grew up in the academic world, but you know, a lot of states, and I think in Iowa, the, the state and the border regions, they have a lot of control over the university, but I think they only fund 15% of the budget. Now, you know, if I was the new president, I'd be going to Kim Reynolds and said, let's privatize the University of Iowa. We don't want any of your money. We'll go out and we'll collaborate with the private sector. Yeah, there have we'll been some institutions that have done that and said, okay, if you're going to give us 15%, then here's the 15% of the university you can control. And then we'll make decisions about the other. Because your hands are tied. Yeah. I mean, you and I could probably go create an institution that would do all kinds of amazing things. But universities have a lot of horsepower and they have a lot of gifted people. You know, tenure in, in, in my mind is a problem. Um, I mean, if you're doing research that's relevant today and it's going to be relevant in three, five and 10 years. But if you're doing research that's so esoteric, there's three people in the world that are interested in it, that might be great, but um, maybe that should be a personal passion because if we're spending $10 million a yeah. year and there's three people in the world that, you know, where do you draw the line? The problem is you never know when that's going to be the next innovation. Yeah. So it's, you know, <clears throat> allocations of resources and focus. I mean, maybe you can't be every university can't be everything to everybody. I don't know the answer, Dan. That's true. That, but, that's a true statement has never been said. <laughs> you can't be everything to everybody for um, certain. What are you going to be better at? So, you know, I don't, I don't know the answer to that. Um, so I, this has been great. We probably only made it halfway through what I thought we might get into today. So maybe we'll, we'll um, have a, a follow-up conversation. Um, how can, um, guests get a hold of you uh the best way to get a hold of me would be the university of iowa website um where my email it's dan hyphen clay at uiwa.edu and uh that'd be the most effective way to get a hold of me be happy to chat with anybody um, i'm always interested in meeting new people and learning new things and you and i have had some really interesting coffee shop conversations uh that have gone off in all kinds of interesting <laughs> directions <laughs> And, you know, the benefit to me of these kinds of things is the people that you meet. It's the curiosity thing again is, you, you know, I don't even know how we first got connected uh, the first time, but the people you meet through the networks you make, you're always learning something. I learned something today just in my conversation with you. So I really appreciate you inviting me here. It's been a pleasure. Well, thanks. Thanks so much. I think we met maybe when Bruce Maul was here working on the campus-wide innovation right. project for Sarah right. Guardiol, but you're right. 
Um, it's, it's tied back in innovation. So we'll get together another time, Dan, and talk about businesses and innovation and what you're doing as an entrepreneur. Sure. We didn't even get into that. So thank you so much for your time and uh, uh, have a great day. Thanks for joining us on the Ampex podcast. Hope you enjoyed this episode. Make sure not to miss future episodes and please rate the show wherever you get your podcast. Thanks to our awesome production team, Lindsay Soderberg, social and digital marketing, Taylor Higgins, video production, and Seth Nielsen, marketing. See you next time.